Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. prayed. Uh, we're going to start a new sermon series this morning. It's a, it's a bit unplanned, it's a bit unexpected, and it's a little different than things I've done in the past, but it's just due to the recent conflict in Israel, which is you know, greater than it has been in a long time. It's, there's always conflict over there, right? But it's, it's escalated again in, 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 on October 7th. And after much prayer and much study, I'm convinced that uh, now is an opportune time for us to lay aside our exposition of Romans to focus on this issue of the land, Israel and the land. And, and my heart and mind, you should know, has been on Israel pretty much all year. I have been writing papers on it, and I, I go to seminary still, and... Uh, the, the subject of Israel has just been on my heart and mind all year. Uh, I was planning, actually, Ed and I were planning to take a trip there in December for 10 days. We were going to do an intensive study trip uh, with Shepherd's Theological Seminary just as part of the course, taking a course on the history and geography of Israel. So that's it's just one of those things that's just been on my heart and mind for so long, and, and the information is ripe, you know, it, it's right there, so I thought, uh, felt like the Lord was really leading us to, to study this out. You know, a lot of Christians, rightly so, have, have questions, right? How do we respond to the conflict in Israel? Can we even call it Israel? Is it Israel or is it Palestine? Uh... Why did God choose Israel? Why did he choose this specific little teeny tiny strip of land that he did? And why does everybody want their hands on it? Why does everybody want to control it? Uh, what's the conflict over it? Is Israel's refounding in 1948 legal? Should there be a two-state solution? A Jewish state and a Palestinian state? Are the college professors right saying the modern state of Israel is colonialism or imperialism? Not all professors, obviously, but who in the world are the Palestinians anyway? Who are these people? And are they right? Is their narrative right in that they are the ancient heirs of the land and that there's no evidence Jews were ever in the land? That's their narrative. Uh, what should our attitude be towards the modern state of Israel? What does their presence in the land mean for us? I mean, these are just some of the questions that I hope to answer through this series. And as you can tell, it's a complex issue. But I hope to answer these questions reasonably and most important, biblically. And people want to know. And I'm glad they do. 
I have friends, I have family, I have church members asking me these things. How should we respond to this conflict and how should we think about the modern state of Israel? And I'm, I'm sure glad that they are asking these questions. I'm glad they want to know. We should want to know. And I'm thankful uh, for, for their questions. So if you have questions, present them to me. Maybe we can answer them through this series. But one thing I do want to ask is that you just pray for me. Because this is kind of like climbing into a rabbit hole <laughs> for a little bit. Uh, the conflict between Israel and Palestine, and it's just a, it's a deep, complex issue, and it's dark. It can be really dark when you're, <laughs> there's spiritual warfare going on. It's not just a fight for land. It's a deep, dark spiritual battle. So pray for me, um, because there's just a lot of information to communicate, and I want to communicate it clearly. And as we're going to see right away here, there's a lot of information out there that could not be further from the truth, but it's the steady feed, the steady diet that our nation and the world receives regarding this conflict. For example, the New York Times published this photo back in the year 2000. Anybody recall this photo? Uh, It's a photo of a man with blood dripping down his forehead, right, down his face, and there's a fiery Israeli policeman standing behind him with a club, and now, what's your first impression when you read an Israeli, an Israeli policeman and a Palestinian on the Temple Mount? It's, they're implying that this Israeli policeman beat this Palestinian. And so it looks like police brutality. However, after they ran the photo, the truth came out. The beaten individual was identified as Tuvia Grossman. And Tuvia's father wrote the New York Times to inform them that that Palestinian was actually his Jewish son from Chicago. So he's an American citizen and Jew, two things they hate, right? The father of Tuvia wrote, he and his friend were pulled from their taxi cab while traveling in Jerusalem by a mob of Palestinian Arabs and were severely beaten and stabbed. This picture could not have been taken on the Temple Mount, and certainly because there are no gas stations on the Temple Mount. <laughs> okay, And certainly none with Hebrew lettering, like the one seen behind the Israeli soldier attempting to protect my son from the mob. The New York Times corrected their statement by stating that they were wrong and that the young man was actually an American student in Israel. They also said it was taken in the old city of Jerusalem, not on the Temple Mount. But they failed to mention that he was Jewish and that the incident actually occurred in an Arab neighborhood. And only after public outrage did they reprint the photo with a correct caption that he was a young American Jewish student who would have been killed had the Israeli police not stood over him and guarded him with his club. Another significant example some of you folks might remember is this icon, 12-year-old Mohammed al-Dura, a 12-year-old boy shot in some crossfire between the Palestinians and the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And though no one could tell in the video who shot the boy, there's no evidence to say who shot the boy. He just got caught in the crossfire at the wrong place at the wrong time. What do you think the Palestinians did? They took him, made him an icon of the Palestinian movement, and the IDF 
was blamed for it. And I share this because, and these, these, these examples, because much of what you're going to see in the headlines today regarding this conflict is going to be a reflection of these false, supercharged, or exaggerated narratives. A headline is going to read something like this. Palestinian shot by the IDF at a border crossing. IDF's the bad guy. It will not say Palestinian strapped with bombs to his body refusing to stop shot by the IDF. It'll just say Palestinian shot by the IDF. And so if you get all your information on this issue from the news and the news headlines, you'll probably start to assume their opinion. The form, they form the public opinion, and it's just hurried, it's sloppy, and intentional or unintentional anti-Semitic media bias, and it's alive and well today, just as it was, just as it was when those articles were written. But uh, that's what you can expect as reports come out of the Gaza Strip or out of Israel. And if you don't know, the Gaza Strip is a little strip of land. We're going to be defining a lot of terms in this series. Uh, the Gaza Strip is a little strip of land in the southwestern corner of Israel. And, and you can expect that as the IDF ground forces move in, justly defending themselves after the unspeakable massacre on October 7th, when, as you know, the terrorist organization Hamas slaughtered any and every Jewish person they could, babies and women and elderly, uh, taking some of them hostage. As, as the IDF moves in here to clean it out, it's a hornet's nest, an absolute hornet's nest of terrorists. And as they move in, everyone's going to forget about that October 7th massacre of people being butchered and burned alive, even children, piles of children just being burned alive. Everyone's going to forget about that, babies being cooked in ovens, and they're going to start to attack Israel. They're going to blame Israel, they're going to misrepresent them, mischaracterize them, and meanwhile, you can expect the terrorists to be softly labeled as militants or freedom fighters, kindly having their war crimes overlooked. In his book, Understanding the Arab-Israeli Conflict, a book that's a must-have if you want to understand this conflict. It's by Michael Rydelnik. He says that the media has proven and will continue to prove their moral equivalency in depicting death. It portrays unintentional, pre-warned civilian deaths in military operations by the IDF as equally heinous as the deliberate murder of civilians by Palestinian terrorists. They'll just equate the two. And then one example that's come out of the, the activities already involves the Al-Ali hospital bombing in Gaza. On October 17th, 10 days after the start of it, headlines read this, Hundreds of people have been killed in an Israeli airstrike on a hospital in Gaza, according to Palestinian officials. You want to trust those people? I mean, it's like trusting Al Jazeera in the YouTube channel. But what really happened was that Hamas launched one of their rockets. These are uncontrollable rockets. They cannot target specific things. They just launch them out. Uncontrollable rockets, homemade rockets from Gaza towards Israel, and they launched them right past the hospital. And as approximately 550 of their rockets have done, their cobbled-together rockets, 
uh, it failed during its boost phase. And it lands near the hospital in the hospital's parking lot and damaged some cars and some of the surrounding buildings. It actually didn't hit the hospital. And as you can tell, maybe by the picture, actually there wasn't a whole lot of damage even done. But that didn't stop Hamas from blaming it on the IDF, exaggerating a death toll in the hundreds, and then pleading for the world's sympathy. And the media buys it up. What do you expect? This is the way it is in this conflict. This is what you're going to hear. And it's awful. And don't get me wrong, Israel is not perfect either. They've had their moments too. But the news media that forms the public opinion is, is biased. And let's, let's just ask why. Why, why the rise in anti-Semitism? Why, why the anti-Zionism? Let's define these real quick. Anti-Semitism, okay, the, the prejudice against or hatred of Jewish people. Uh, the word Jew comes from the term Judah. That would be Abraham's grandson. That's how we get the name Jew. It's from Judah. The term Hebrew, we call them the Hebrew people sometimes. That comes from Abraham being the, he was the first Jew, but he's this descendant of Eber. And so Hebrew comes, Hebrew comes from his lineage of coming from Eber. And then the Jews are also a Semitic people. And you might actually say Shemitic people because they're descendants of Shem, the son of Noah. Actually, Noah had three sons. The whole world came from his three sons. You would say maybe one-third of the world's population is Semitic. Even Abraham's son Ishmael that the Muslims claim to come from. They claim to be the promised children of, of Ishmael, basically. But anti-Semitism is a word that has been more narrowly defined as hatred against the Jewish people. And Abraham was a, a Shemite. So that's where that comes from. Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to an autonomous state in their ancient homeland. Like they have a right to be in the land, they have a right to exist there and have a nation there. Uh, Anti-Zionism is basically opposition to that. But why the anti-Semitism, why the anti-Zionism in the media and around the world and on our campuses, why is... Why is it on the rise? Why is it that Israel can do everything imaginable to mitigate damage, protect civilians in their pursuit of these animalistic terrorists, and yet Israel is the bad guy? And they're worse than animals. Absolutely atrocious things that they've done. Israel is always on the defense. They have been. And and they're always putting up, they have to put up walls to stop attacks. Walls that were effective, by the way. I think we could learn a thing or two from them. As soon as Israel put up walls in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, right, the, the death tolls, the numbers, all the attacks went way down. The wall worked. The walls worked. But they're, they're always defending themselves, always putting up walls. They only retaliate when they're attacked. They only defend themselves, right? Hamas, however, can commit these unspeakable atrocities like October 7th, take every effort to target Israeli civilians, fire rockets from civilian neighborhoods in Gaza, hide underneath the hospitals, using civilians as human shields, commit all these war crimes, and yet they get overlooked, their crimes get overlooked, and the stories are spun. Why is this? 
Seriously. Why? I mean, is it just a surface level issue? Is it just about land? And the answer to that is no. Would it help if Israel gave back the land? I'm going to ruin the mystery for us, but no. Because Israel has always been ready to make for peace. They've offered a two-state solution with way more on top of it than that. Israel has given back much of the land they've won in wars that they didn't start, which is an illegal way to acquire land, by the way. They've offered to give the Golan Heights up there in the northeast back to Syria. They've offered the Gaza Strip back, you know, the... They backed out of Gaza in 2005. That was a grave mistake, we're learning, because it became a hornet's nest. And then they've offered, right, uh, all of Gaza and 97% of the West Bank, also known as Judea and Samaria, to the Palestinians in exchange for a final peace agreement. And the Palestinians refuse. Why? Because it's not about peace. It's about existence. Who's going to be the one who exists, basically, <laughs> existing in the land? And we'll go into more detail later, but the truth is that the Jews have always had a presence in the land, and they acquired it through the pen, legally, and not with the sword. Hamas will die before they have peace. They refuse peace. Their charter, the Hamas charter, calls for the complete destruction of Jews and national Israel. They won't rest until the Jews are destroyed completely. And a lot of these terrorist groups, like Hamas or Hezbollah, they feel the same way about Americans. They hate us as well. They'd like to wipe us up off, off the map too. And that's actually what Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, said once about Israel. They'd just like to wipe it off the map. Push them into the sea and establish a Palestinian state in place of Israel. Not alongside, not with Israel, but just in, in place of Israel. And so Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was right when he said in a speech in 2006, he said, what is the conflict about? It's about our existence. Here, facing our enemies, the truth is that if Israel were to put down its arms, there would be no more Israel. But if the Arabs were to put down their arms, there'd just be no more war. And that's the truth. But the truth is hard to come by, and that's why we're going to study this issue. We're going to study this issue out. And if anybody should love and pray for and support and be informed on the Jewish people in the state of Israel, interested in the land and what's going on there, other than the Jews, it should be us. We should have a heart for the Jewish people. And uh, our Bibles are Jewish. Our Lord is Jewish. We're, you know, our salvation is rooted in the promises to the Jews. And we've been so blessed by the Jews, and we're only going to get more blessed by the Jews as God works through them in the future. And we'll study that out. And uh, even though my trip, our trip, Ed, got canceled to Jerusalem or the, the Promised Land, we're all going to end up there someday anyway, right? As the Lord comes back. But this is a good reason to study this too, is because the Lord is going to bless those who bless Israel, and I'm excited to, 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 to be part of this church in support of Israel. As we begin this study, let's, let's put one clear principle in our minds, right? We want to think biblically about the land of Israel. 
We want to think biblically about Israel and the land. We want to know what the Bible has to say about it, just like anything else, right? What does the Bible say? And to do that, we're going to start in Genesis. We're going to work our way through the Scriptures, seeing what the Bible has to say about the land of Israel in the past, up to the present, and even in the future. And we're going to try to develop here through this series a biblical filter, a grid through which to sift all of the headlines out there, all of the ideas out there. We're going to sift it through the truth of God's Word. And this particular area of study is just so important because there's just so many false ideas out there about it. Um, Even in the church, we're not even talking about just social media or, you know, not the media, sorry. There's a lot of false ideas there, but even in the church, did you know like most churches think that they are spiritual Israel and that we're living in the kingdom of God right now and Satan's bound and we're all of those prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel's restoration that like most churches, thank you Catholic Church, um, believe that they are Israel. And you know, like the Catholics and the Protestants took that really far back in the day, and that's how you ended up with holy war. Like, they're the kingdom of God. They have their currency. They have their land. They have their um, holy wars. We can just, you know, hang heretics, people who disagree with us. That's kind of where the, you take that idea that far, that's where you end up. Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God was going to come in the future when he comes, and until then... Good and evil are going to exist side by side. It's not your job to, at the church, to take the tares out of the wheat before he comes. He'll do that when he comes, right? But what I'm talking about here is replacement theology or supersessionism. The idea that the church has superseded or replaced Israel. Again, it's closely linked with amillennialism, the idea that we're living in the kingdom now, or covenant theology. Uh, Replacement theology teaches that God's basically done with Israel. And maybe other than saving a a remnant of them. And that he really doesn't have a future for them. And that all of those covenants and things that are actually fulfilled spiritually in the church. Well, I, I, I understand how you get there. And I understand how that idea became dominant for centuries. I mean, that's what I started out with. was an NIV study Bible that convinced me we were the true spiritual Israel. But... Over time, I began to see if you just interpret the Bible plainly, might I say literally, just understanding Israel as Israel, the Israel of God as Israelites who've believed in God and in Christ, well, then the Bible makes sense. And all of a sudden, it's like you can put all the puzzle pieces together, and it's, it's a wondrous thing. And, and you get to see now God in his fully orbed glory, covenant-keeping glory, that even after all these years, he would keep his promise with these stubborn, stiff-necked people that we call Israel. That's something that we're going to contemplate for eternity. Human history, one of my professors says, is the curriculum that we're going to contemplate for eternity because it teaches us about God who he is, and he is a covenant-keeping God. 
And a lot of churches are neutral on this issue or they're blatantly aggressive against Israel. I, you know, some pastors mock the modern state of Israel. And, and I'm not saying Israel's perfect, we'll get to that. Uh, we're not even saying that they're godly or they're saved. Some individual Jews are, but not the nation. But Scripture speaks of a national restoration. But, I mean, think about this. Given all the, ex- the attempts to exterminate them or blend them in with the rest of the world, right? Whether you take the Babylon approach of a scorched earth, you know, and you just wipe all the Jews out. There's been so many attempts to exterminate the Jews or Hellenism, right? Trying to blend them into the culture kind of approach and just get rid of the Jews that way. Here they are back in the land with their ancient language and national identity. And we're talking ancient language like Ancient, ancient language, not just like a modern Hebrew here. And to me, this gathering from the four winds, I mean, even when I was in Santiago, Chile, on the other side of the world, down south, there was Jews walking around. Clearly Jews, with their national identity and language and everything. And to see these people come back to the land, and, and, and millions of them, and to have them there, to me, that should send a stark reminder, a warning hey, God's not done with these people. And we can still call them the chosen people. Speaking about, you know, theology in the church related to this, did you know, I know I harped on him. I was tough on him last week. But I'm going to be tough on him this week too. Martin Luther, he wrote tracts against the Jews. We praise him for the things that he did well, but man, he did so many things wrong. You know, he's kind of like Peter, one second, praising God, the next second, get behind me, Satan. Because Hitler used Martin Luther's material. Martin Luther slandered Jews as venomous, bitter worms and disgusting vermin. Encouraging the German people to set fire to the Jewish synagogues and schools in honor of our Lord Jesus and in honor of Christendom. Kill the Jews in honor of Christ and his kingdom. He advised Jewish houses and literature to be destroyed, their treasures taken, and their every move hindered. That's exactly the opposite attitude that we should have. And it's amazing that he said that after loving the book of Romans so much. Because Romans 9 through 11, you do not see that at all. You see a heart for the Jewish people, a heart of Paul that would give himself, give up his own salvation for them. Just the opposite attitude we ought to have. But that same anti-Semitic spirit is alive and well today, just as it was in, in Pharaoh trying to wipe out the Hebrew males. Right? Haman and, and Esther trying to wipe out the Jewish people, Hitler. Guys, it is a dark, demonic thing, anti-Semitism. But at the end of this study, here's what we want to do. We want to think right so that we, re- we respond right, so that we respond to this appropriately and in a, in a God-honoring way. And honestly, I have no agenda that's hidden here, obviously. You know where I stand. I want us to be a bastion of support for Israel. A bastion of support for Israel. I mean, maybe we might be the only, I don't want to say that, one of the only churches in this town, if only, that's going to speak out in support of the Jewish people like this. 
There's going to be some church. You know what I mean by bastion, by the way? A bastion is a, you know, there's a defensive wall that's a bastion. You know, the bastion is the part that sticks out from the wall. They get the work done. And they, they stand out from the rest. I want our church to stand out from the rest and not be silent about this. We're going to support Israel. There's a lot of churches that are going to pray for Israel. Praise the Lord, but you know what? We're going to do a little bit more. God blesses those who bless Israel. Amen? And so, here we go. We're going to look at Israel in the past. That's where we're going to start. We're not going to get very far today. But Israel in the past, we turn to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is where we find the call of Abraham. As we know, we've, it's amazing. We've been here four straight weeks in a row, even in Romans and with Ty Perry's sermon. But let's appreciate the context of this passage. This is taking place in 2091 B.C., 2,100 years before uh, Christ. So Abraham's 75 years old. And according to the biblical record, this is approximately 2,000 years into the earth's history when this happens, when God calls Abraham. And that's actually more time than is recorded in the entire Old Testament, by the way. But these two millennia before Abraham's call are characterized by apostasy and rebellion. Genesis 1-11, through what do you see? You see apostasy and rebellion against God. You see the nations rebelling against God. The human race since the Garden of Eden has proved itself rebellious and corrupt, so much so that God did what? He flooded the world. He flooded the world, and only Noah and his family, what is it, eight people in all, are, are saved. And so your, your hopes are high in Genesis 9 after the flood. Noah and his family are safe. Mankind's mediating rule, Genesis 1, 26-28, God gave man the, the the, the purpose of ruling over the earth and subduing it, right? Those are kingdom terms. Uh, your hopes are high in Genesis 9 because the flood's over, the family's safe, and God reaffirms, hey, man, this is still your purpose. And he actually extends that. He extends it to capital punishment now. So if anybody kills another man who's made in the image of God, then his blood, if anybody sheds blood, then that, blood, that man's blood's going to be shed. Right? Obviously, murder was a problem before the flood. And uh, by the end of chapter 9, though, when your hopes are all high, you see Noah drunk, and it's not a pretty sight. And then by the end of chapter 11, the nations are judged again because they erect this humanistic tower of Babel, this God-rejecting, uh, man-exalting tower and trying to start a one-world government. You know, a, gl- a global government is great when Christ is ruling in righteousness and justice and in peace. But it's the worst thing imaginable when wicked man is in charge. And that's the direction the world's going, isn't it? And so here, in sum, Genesis 1 through 11, you see God's universal dealings with humanity. But then in Genesis chapter 12, the focus shifts and from there on out, the focus is on an individual or choice dealings with a man named Abraham and the nation of Israel that comes from him. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 reads in your sermon notes, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. 
And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So three things there, right? Land, seed, and blessing. But most important to us right now is the land. That's what's in our mind, land, seed, and blessing. And as we've been talking about in Romans chapter 4, even though God chose one man, one nation to work with, God's uh, promise to him had universal elements, had global elements in his choosing of Abraham. God is not rejecting the world that, re- that is rejecting him. He's choosing through Abraham his primary strategy to put himself on display in the world and draw the world to himself. That's what he's doing. He's not rejecting the world. He's, he's gonna, it's a strategy to draw the world to him. And so his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would become the nation of Israel. And they were to be as we'll see next week, God's mediators in the world. God's mediators in the world. Salt and light in the world. And where did he place them? Ezekiel 5.5 5 says at the center of the world. The very heart of the world. Right in the middle between Africa and, and Asia and Europe. Right there. And the only little teeny tiny green strip of land that people would travel through. So that everybody would see the glory of God in Israel and the way things are supposed to be. And they would take that news to the nations. How blessed is this people Israel who does things God's way, share the news with the nations. Caravans and messengers would come through Israel, and they take it to the world. He's reaching the world through Israel. Ezekiel 5.5 says, This is Jerusalem. I've placed her in the center of the nations with countries all around her so we can all learn about God by the way he interacts with this people. It's an amazing, amazing thing to think about. But God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. And notice that land is part of the original promise. Abraham's uh, journeys from Ur near Babylon to the land of Canaan or Israel, uh, whatever you want to call it, it's had several names, we'll call it Israel. But he's going from Ur, following the Fertile Crescent, all the way up to Haran and then back down uh, to the promised land of Israel. And after that he goes to Egypt once he returns from Egypt, him and his nephew Lot have so many, so many, so much cattle that, that, that they're getting in the way, okay? And they've got to part ways. How many times have your cattle caused problems, right? Ranchers? Well, here they go. There's so many cattle, they're causing problems. They've got to part ways, and, and they're standing actually on this ridge line, they call it the ridge route, the route of the patriarchs. It's the high point of the Judean hill country. It runs right through Jerusalem from, from Hebron all the way up like Ramah and Jerusalem and that sort of thing. But uh, they're standing there on that ridge route between Bethel and Ai. And you can see all the way to the north. You can see Mount Hermon. You can see the Jordan Valley. You can see to the south. You can see all this, the coastal plains. They're up there and... Abraham basically says, well, pick away, pick, pick where you're going to go. You know, and, and he looks down in the Jordan Valley, lush green Jordan Valley, and he says, I'm going to go there. We're down by Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is when the, that area was as lush as the Garden of Eden. That's what the Bible says. It was like the Garden of the Lord down there. What, did it, what is it now after Sodom and Gomorrah? It's the lowest elevation on the earth. It's called the Dead Sea. Okay, nothing, there's nothing alive in it because of the salt. You might call it the salt sea too, but it's just it's basically uninhabitable, right? Well, Lot goes down to the east, and then Abraham, it says, saddles westward of him. 
in Hebron. Look at Genesis 13, 14 through 18. God elaborates on the promise. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now raise your eyes and look from the place uh, where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as plentiful as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be counted. Arise and walk about the land. Walk, walk about the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. And then Abraham moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And so God says all the land that he can see from up there is going to belong to him and his descendants. And for how long? Forever. Forever, I'll give it to you and your descendants. Forever, not for 250 years, not for 2,000 years, not until AD 70 or Bar Kokhba in AD 135. He says, forever. Everlasting. And forever means forever. At least I hope it does when we come to John 3.16. In Genesis 15, God reaffirms the promise. God had Abraham bring him a heifer, a goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. It sounds weird to us, but this is how they made covenants. They took these animals and basically split them in two, and they would walk through them to ratify the covenant. And uh, you see this in Genesis 15, 12 through 21. And normally, both parties involved in the covenant would walk through there. That would be a bilateral covenant. Notice what happens here, Genesis 15, 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. He's talking about their time in Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. And as for you, you're, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. And then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now it came about when the sun set that it was very dark and behold a smoking oven and a flaming torch clearly representing God's presence appeared and it passed between the pieces. Remember Abraham's in a deep sleep and God alone passes through these pieces. He's, Abraham's fuzzy. But on the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenite, Kenizzite, Kadmonite, Hittite, Perizzite, Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, Girgashite, and the Jebusite. And termites, right? But God affirms the land promise with an unconditional, unilateral covenant. That is so important. Unconditional, unilateral covenant. There's a lot going on here, but at the end of the day, after Israel... Uh, they go to Egypt, right? They grow into this big nation over the course of 400 years. After that, they're going to come up and possess the land. And God makes a covenant with him on that. Okay? And this is not a bilateral covenant. It's a unilateral covenant because only God walks through those pieces. He's saying, it's up to me alone to keep this promise. We talked about this last week. If it was up to us to keep the promise or secure the promise by our own works, our own efforts... We wouldn't inherit the promises. But God here secures the promise by saying, I'm going to keep this in my grace by my determination. 
Notice God's I will statements in all those passages we read. I will, I will, I will. He's saying it's up to me to fulfill it. No conditions attached. And then next week, I hope to explain how disobedience to the law that God gave them could result in the loss of blessings. The blessing of being in the land. So you ask, why are they dispersed all over the world? Where? Well, they disobeyed God. And so they would always, here's the thing, they would always own the land, but they're not always going to be in it. We'll talk about that more next week. Genesis 17, though, I want to read this. Genesis 17, 7 through 8 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I'll give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And so over and over and over again, we see this land thing brought up. It's important. And it's clear as a, it's just as clear as can be. And some want to call this covenant the Palestinian covenant instead of the land covenant. I call it the land covenant because the Palestinian covenant was an anti-Semitic term from the start back in AD 135 when Emperor Hadrian uh, basically tried to paganize the entire country. He wanted to erase the memory of the Jews from the land. And he renamed Jerusalem, he renamed the land Palestine after their ancient enemies, the Philistines. And so, uh, we'll talk more about that later, but look at the boundaries of this land, real quick, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. So not necessarily uh, the Nile, but the Wadi Al-Arish, 25 miles southwest of Gaza, and uh, then to the Euphrates River to the north. The Euphrates River actually extends to the north of Israel, uh, as we usually think of it. Some want to extend that, you know, like from the Nile or to Babylon, but... uh, I think this is the way to go about it, personally. But this, this land, this is a lot more land than they have right now, right? Um, it wasn't fulfilled. See, here's Dan to Beersheba. Uh, that's typically the, the borders. It's way farther south and way farther north that God promised them. And it wasn't fulfilled in the days of Joshua. And they came really close in the days of David and Solomon. And, uh, you know, it, and Solomon did rule over all of that. Uh, just as God had promised, but some of it was just uh, just from the tribute from other kings who were actually ruling over it. And then it was temporary too, right? It wasn't permanent. It was very temporary. And so uh, the future fulfillment uh, of that promise, I think, should be expected according to the prophets. A plain reading of the prophets reveals that the final or ultimate fulfillment happens when, get this, the nation returns in unbelief. From the four corners of the earth, they're converted in the land, and the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom. It's predicted they'll return in unbelief, just like they are today. And uh, we'll get more into the message of the prophets later. You have some more in your notes, but I've taken enough of your time. What do we take away from this so far? Number one, God promised a literal land of Israel to Israel, to the Jewish people. He ratified it. Over and over, especially with an unconditional, unilateral covenant. And again, the redemption of the world required that because if it was up to Abraham to keep it or anybody else, boy, no one would inherit the world someday, right? (laughs) No one would inherit the land. But uh, next week, we're going to look at why God chose this land and do some more geography and history of the land. 
and pick up the Bible story from there. But let me ask you this. Why is there so much hatred for the Jews? Why is the modern state of Israel, like the most legal, most legally founded nation on the face of the earth, so despised and so ridiculed? Let me ask you this. Could it be because the Jews are the chosen people and that land is the chosen land that God chose to put himself on display in the world so that everybody could know him? Could it be that Satan hates everything that God loves and chooses? I'll leave that question lingering in your mind this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for our time and your word. We love it. We cherish it. We adore it. We would be so lost without it. And I pray that you continue to inform us on this critical issue through this study. And we want to give you all the praise and the glory for what you've done. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.